I'm Nina Lua. And I'm Max Lydiot. We're psychiatry residents at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and this is the History of Madness podcast. In this podcast, we will be telling fascinating stories from the history of psychiatry. Today we will be talking about studies on hysteria, which was the first book published by Sigmund Freud and was co-written by Freud and Joseph Brewer in 1895, and it introduces the founding psychoanalytic principles. So as a psychiatry resident, I've never actually read Freud. How about you? No, neither have I. This is my first time actually reading Freud. And I don't think that's uncommon. It's just Freud can be very dense and intimidating to approach. Mm-hmm. And I think the other part of it is, I think his thought process, it informs a lot of what we do, but it's not the same. You know what I mean? Like, it's a little harder to draw direct, clinically applicable things from Freud than it would be to, for instance, read a textbook. Yeah, for sure. I still found it valuable to hear things in his words, mm. but the general principles you could probably get from reading an anthology by Freud. Mm-hmm. But... Either way, reread these books so you don't have to. <laughs> um, so, psychoanalysis was the first form of psychotherapy. And that is what is so significant about studies on hysteria, because essentially this is where psychotherapy originates. And it originates in the treatment of women with hysteria. So, the book itself consists of an introductory paper published in 1893 that's reprinted, and this was jointly published by both Freud and Brewer, followed by four case studies on hysteria, the most famous of which is Brewer's Anna O. case, which we will discuss in detail later, followed by essays on therapy by both Freud and Brewer. Now, what is hysteria? Essentially, hysteria is female madness. That's a very oversimplification of it. And the idea of hysteria has been around since the ancient Greeks. Hysteria itself originates from the Greek word for uterus, and the Egyptians attributed behavioral disturbances of women due to a wandering uterus. Plato thought that female madness originated in their lack of sexual activities, and the Romans thought it was due to problems with reproduction. Hmm. And then with the rise of Christianity, hysteria was seen as evil related to the original sin of Eve, and these women were persecuted as witches and executed. But by Freud's time in the 19th century, hysteria was seen as more of a mental and neurological disorder that afflicted mainly women. It was a catch-all of diagnoses, classically with conversion symptoms. So these women, they fainted, developed tremors, tics, hallucinations, and they were neurotic and melancholic. So the main person who is kind of responsible for this shift of thinking about hysteria as something afflicting to the uterus as more of Mm. a neurological disorder was John Martin Charcot. That that name sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. He's the famous French neurologist, considered the father of neurology, who everything in our medical textbooks is named after. And he had taken it upon himself to study hysteria and hypnosis. He put his reputation at stake studying something considered on the fringes of medicine. So Charcot would do these demonstrations, which was how medical students were taught Mm -hmm. in the day. There was this demonstration, and it was in a theater, and Charcot famously 
had women who had hysteria and he would bring out the hysteria by hypnotizing them. And you may have seen that famous painting of Charcot and his hysteria patient, Blanche Whitman, who is probably the most well-known hysteria patient. There's this painting called A Clinical Lesson at the Salpetriere by André Bruyer, and it depicts Charcot giving a demonstration to a group of students, one of whom is G. de la Tourette, and the woman in the center of the painting is Blanche, and she is fainting with her back arched and her hands clenched in a fist and curled up, and her clothes are loosened and the top of the breasts are exposed suggestively. Max, how do you feel when you see this painting? Um, I mean, I, I agree. It looks very, like, kind of voyeuristic. Everyone else is fully clothed, and she's, like, you know, almost almost very dramatically, like, her clothes are just kind of hanging. The faces in the crowd are, looks like it's all men, as are the demonstrators, um, which I think maybe is probably reflective of reality, but it kind of adds, like, kind of a, again, a voyeuristic or almost like a creepy element to it. Yeah, it made me really uncomfortable as a woman to sort of see all these men watching this one woman, almost like a zoo animal, but oddly kind of relatable, you know, as medical yeah. students, we made the rounds and, yeah, you know, but I don't think that's as bad as it was back in the day. I think we're a lot more sensitive to it now. I think there's there's a temptation to be like that. I mean, for instance, I had... When I was on consults, I had a patient with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and I was like just gathering every medical student I could find to bring with me to, to see this patient. And I think it would be very easy to just get caught up in the excitement of this is a cool case, look at how like how this is presenting, and let's go through all these signs. If I had not had it like reinforced in me through, I guess, my either my upbringing or my medical training that, you know, this is a patient in front of you, they're probably very scared. Um, their family is very scared. That's the first priority. But that being said, that impulse is still there. And I could easily see myself falling into that. You can imagine yourself as one of the faces in the painting. <laughs> I can, yes. So Blanche Whitman was born to a carpenter and a maid and was apprenticed at age 12 to a furrier who sexually abused her for years. And she had these seizure-like episodes during which she would lose consciousness and urinate on herself, which then worsened as a teenager. She was hospitalized at the Salpeter, where dozens of women who suffered from pseudo-seizures, well, that's not a correct term these days, mm -hmm. but a seizure that's not organic. Yeah. Yes. Um, and this captured Charcot's interests. Charcot treated her with hypnosis and discovered that he could induce the attacks by hypnotizing her. And eventually he started doing these clinical demonstrations and Blanche was his star. She would become rigid and assume unnatural positions, act out sexual scenes. She was somewhat of a celebrity and writers, artists, politicians attended these crowded demonstrations. Charcot was not as interested in using the hypnosis to treat the patients with hysteria as he was in demonstrating the non-organic nature of hysteria symptoms. I've heard also, and I don't know if this has been something you found in your research, but that some of his assistants later wrote that he deliberately kind of cultivated this like overdramatic presentation and kind of coached his patients on how they should act rather than like actually trying to, you know, figure out what exactly was going on. 
I don't know, did you come across that at all? I think there were definitely incentives for these women to be participants in this because mm. I think they were like cared for, they were kind of like they're they're minor celebrities when mm. they participated in this, especially for Blanche. And then there were lots of accusations that he was coaching these women. Maybe, but I also feel like this isn't necessarily factitious. I think it's more of a conversion disorder. Mm. And with conversion disorder, it's often hard for people to wrap their heads around. A lot of the times when people have conversion disorder, it feels like they're faking it, Mm. but they're not doing it on purpose. Right, right. Well, maybe actually, maybe this is a good time to talk about conversion disorder Mm -hmm. and what we we mean by that, because it's something we'll be referencing a lot throughout the rest of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, first of all, conversion disorder, it is something that has its root, just the phrase itself is very psychodynamic or kind of of this time as well. It's the idea that these like psychical phenomenon are converted directly into some kind of physical manifestation, whether it's like neurologic disease, seizure-like activity, or some other kind of phenomenon like that. And for a long time, which we'll talk about a lot during this episode, it was thought that there was necessarily a component of psychological distress or trauma that was being acted out in some way. A lot of people, especially early on and for a long time, thought that whatever the condition of the psychological distress would be manifest in the type of symptoms that would be like converted. So for instance, an example that I learned was someone who is thinks of themselves as very nonviolent who strikes their wife then eventually has numbness or paralysis of the hand that that hit them that'd be that'd be an example of that whereas kind of in the modern conception it's actually very recently we've we're, we're moving away from calling it conversion disorder because it it makes some assumptions about its etiology that we're trying to get ourselves away from so Basically, since I think either DSM-4 or at least DSM-5, it's been like, you know, it's called conversion disorder, parentheses, functional neurologic disorder. And just recently, in the most recent revision, that was switched. Now, functional neurologic disorder is the thing, and then conversion disorder is just in parentheses. So I think in the next edition, I'll probably go away completely. The reason they do that is because in a third of cases, there is no psychological, like, antecedent that's present. So there's like a specifier whether it's with psychological distress or without psychological stress, stress, not distress. Um, so yeah, so the, the technical term is functional neurologic disorder and then like a subtype is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, other like motor symptoms, tremors, such as that. Um, I am probably gonna slip up and call it conversion disorder a lot. I, I have feeling you will too. In the context of this episode, we can call it conversion disorder. Yeah. And I think in now, in our medical training, we're not really being told to conceptualize con- conversion disorder as because of trauma. We kind of mm-hmm. see it we kind of see it more as, for example, people who have actual seizures, they develop non-organic, non-epileptic seizures. Mm-hmm. Or, or this is a way for people who aren't sophisticated in expressing their distress, this is a way to physically express their distress. Yeah. And by like sophisticated, I agree with that, but just meaning like they don't have the psychological mindedness to be able to articulate that they're feeling anxiety or depression or something. It's simpler for it to be automatically manifested as a somatic symptom. 
So we kind of talked about hysteria and how these women had these conversion symptoms, but what do you think we would consider hysteria to be today? Hmm. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, there's definitely an element of conversion. Um, but it really, I mean, it's, it encompasses like depression. It encompasses anxiety. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it really could be anything, any, any of your thoughts. Yeah. Basically, if you were a woman and you mm. had some, some sort of mental symptom going on that was hysteria, nowadays we kind of think of it as a functional neurological disorder, but we also see a lot of borderline personality disorder. I feel mm. like if we used our modern lens to look at women who are diagnosed with hysteria back in the day, we would probably say, oh, this woman meets criteria for borderline personality disorder. And, you know, the usual just anxiety, depression, PTSD. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we've covered a lot and we've yet to discuss Freud. All the history surrounding Charcot and Blanche is important because this is where Freud's interest in hysteria and later the foundations of psychoanalysis originates. You see, in 1885, Freud was 29 years old and he was a young neurologist in training. He goes to Paris to study under the steam Charcot. And at the time, Freud is doing pioneering research on neurophysiology and was every bit the physician scientist. And as a side note, Freud's contributions to neurology tend to be less well known, but he described the morphological and physiological unity of brain cells and nerve fibers, published texts on aphasia, cerebral palsy, Hmm. studied the pharmacological effects of cocaine, (sighs) which he tried on himself. So Freud, he became a regular attendee of Charcot's lectures. He was one of the faces in the crowds. And what he sees there with these hysteria demonstrations so fascinates him that it changes the course of his career. He returns to Vienna and decides to focus on the treatment of hysteria. He would later name his first son, Martin, after Charcot, Mm. and for the rest of his life had a portrait of Charcot in his study. Freud was born in 1856 in Freiburg, a small town in Moravia, to an unsuccessful Jewish wool merchant, and he was the eldest of his father's seven children with his much younger second wife. The family moved to Vienna when he's four years old. Freud was considered the favorite of the family, and he was constantly winning awards for academic excellence. He was an avid reader, he'd mastered multiple languages, and he attended the University of Vienna in 1873 to study medicine. He, at this time, was, throughout his life, he was just a very studious and serious person. His fiancee was named Martha Bernay, and she came from a distinguished German-Jewish family, and she was six years younger than Freud. They had a long engagement that lasted four years. In the book, Becoming Freud, which I highly recommend, Adam Phillips theorizes that Freud sees himself as an outsider, as a Jewish physician in Vienna, and identifies with female hysterics he sees in Paris. I really like this quote from Becoming Freud. Psychoanalytic patients were people who by definition did not fit in. He identified with the hysterics as the discarded, the thwarted, and the misunderstood, people with baffled desire and stalled ambition, 
people who, not unlike Jews, made people inordinately suspicious. Freud did not fit in in Vienna, and he did not fit in in Paris, where his loneliness became more profound as his senses became overwhelmed by the culture of the city of sin. When he comes back from Paris, he marries his wife and goes into private practice in 1886. Now, throughout his life, Freud has a series of passionate friendships with men, including Joseph Brewer, who co-wrote studies on hysteria, and later with Wilhelm Fleiss, an ENT specialist, and then later in life with younger men, including Carl Jung. These relationships followed a pattern of closeness and then an eventual distancing, and Adam Phillips calls this Freud's need to assert his independence, his, quote, splendid isolation. So Freud was always wary of losing himself and over-identifying with others. Now, Joseph Brewer is 14 years older than Freud, and he's a prominent Viennese Jewish physician in the intellectual high society circles of Vienna. Anna O., the first case in studies on hysteria, was Brewer's patient. In fact, Freud had never actually seen Anna O., when Brewer tells Freud about the Anna O case in 1882, that's when he first becomes interested in using hypnosis to treat hysteria. And then he sets off to Paris and returns with a renewed interest in psychotherapy. Now, Anna O is considered significant because she is the first psychotherapy case. Hmm. Anna O is the first case published in studies on hysteria. And at the time of publication, Freud is 39 years old. He's established both in his neuropathology research career and in his private practice as a neurologist. He has six children under the age of eight. And this book is finally the culmination of the clinical observations and hypotheses that he and Brewer have made from 1881 onwards. Now I'll turn over to Max to talk about who Anna O is and dive deeper into this case. Yeah. So I think this is a a story best told in multiple parts because there's the text version that's essentially Brewer's account of his treatment of Anna O. There's Freud's interpretation of that later on after he and Brewer had had kind of a falling out. And then finally, there's kind of the the modern interpretation and the historical context that we we can get from review of other records. So there's there's kind of three kind of competing narratives that all have the same person, this Anna O, at their center. So who was Anna O? She's a 21-year-old, and she comes from a prominent Orthodox Jewish family. Brewer is her family physician, and the case study kind of takes place after her father became ill from a subphrenic tubercular abscess. So he had basically a consolidated tuberculosis infection. And had a long illness. During most of this time, Anna O was kind of his nurse and caregiver. The timeline of the story is a bit complicated, uh, in part because her symptoms are complicated, and in part because Brewer is writing this case study from kind of fragmented notes that occurred over the period of over a year of meeting with and treating Anna O on almost a daily basis during that entire time. So the entire timeline of this case study takes place from Brewer's involvement in December of 1880 
to June of 1882. So over the course of this time, Anna O's father had fallen ill initially in the summer of 1880. And during that time when she was his caregiver, she'd had kind of a confluence of less significant symptoms, but were still particularly impairing. So during this time, when she was caring for her father and before Brewer's involvement, she would have difficulty sleeping. She would have difficulty caring for her father and would spend long periods of time bedbound. She had complained of weakness, difficulty eating, and developed this kind of nervous cough, which, which mimicked what her father was going through. Then this kind of all escalated, and it got to a point where she needed some kind of assistance. So. Brewer was called in in December of 1880, and around this time, her illness really kind of crystallized. And the the precipitating factor for Brewer being involved was that a lot of these kind of vague symptoms of anorexia and weakness and being confined to her bed clarified into what he described as the manifest illness phase. This was characterized by a number of conversion symptoms. So, for instance, it involved paralysis and eventual contractures of her right arm and right leg. It involved hydrophobia, so the fear of drinking water, even though she was having profound thirst. It would involve periods of depression. It would involve periods where she would have visual disturbances that were of various kinds. So at some periods of time, it would be like extreme tunnel vision to the extent that she could only focus on a single flower at a time in like a vase. It was also characterized by Anabdusen's nerve palsy, which um, uh, Brewer noted that a separate neurologist thought was related to a cranial nerve palsy. He did not, he thought it was psychogenic, as well as some very odd kind of language symptoms. So. At various points throughout the course of this developing period of her illness, she would restrict the the language that she was able to use. So her first language and the language of all of the servants in the household and a brewer was German. So gradually she became unable or did not at least use certain like conjugations of words, eventually started dropping words entirely and eventually over the course of many months was unable to speak in German at all and would only communicate in English. As a side note, Brewer described Anna O as an extremely intelligent who would tell these fantastical stories kind of of like a fairy tale nature. She spoke six languages, she was remarked by multiple sources to be very intelligent and generally at baseline very empathic. But when she would start to speak in only English, she appeared to not be able to recognize that she was doing this. And we get upset that her servants, for example, couldn't understand what she was saying. At some point, she would lose the power of speech entirely and she could communicate only by writing, which was made difficult by her right hand and arm contractures. During this phase, where her symptoms were more significant, her father was still suffering from his illness, and eventually he did die in April of 1881. This produced a marked increase in the intensity of her symptoms, and it was around this time as well, although the timeline to me at least is a little unclear, that she also displayed this waxing and waning state of consciousness to the extent that she would become 
much more somnolent in like the late afternoon and would have to sleep for a period of time, then would wake up in the evening, be a lot more energized and be more lucid at that time. However, Brewer noted that her states of consciousness were somehow different between the early morning and the evening. He thought that this evening Anna O represented a state of semi-hypnosis, of auto-hypnosis, that she had essentially engaged in automatically herself. And this Anna O was a little more disinhibited, was a little more normal, lacking a lot of her symptoms that she displayed during the daytime. And it was at this time that he was able to engage in discussion with her more freely, what she called chimney sweeping. And actually, she also coined the term the talking cure. So she would talk with Brewer, and Brewer would be there for hours a day, almost every day. And gradually, they would talk through all the things that would be on her mind, mostly in the ter- in terms of like these fairy tale stories that she would tell. But sometimes she would hit upon a nugget of like personal relevance and salience. And when she would talk about this, Brewer noticed that the symptom that seemed to be related to this would subsequently disappear. So throughout this this year and a half that they were together, he would encourage her to talk about things related to these symptoms or kind of just general things with the aim of getting to the root of these symptoms and to facilitate this because he believed that this autohypnosis or this, he called it condition secundi, um, that she was in in the evening, he could facilitate that by using hypnosis. So he would take her under hypnosis, would have her talk about pretty much anything, but focused mainly on her symptoms. And gradually, 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 over the course of this time, one by one, they would uncover the unconscious meaning behind one of her symptoms. She would articulate it, and then the symptom would disappear, at least in Brewer's telling. So I want to I want to read a description of this that I think is, is really profound. There's kind of two instances that I think Um, really kind of highlight this process. So this is what Brewer wrote, quote, In July 1880, while he was in the country, her father fell seriously ill of a subpleural abscess. Anna shared the duties of nursing him with her mother. She once woke up during the night in a great anxiety about the patient, who was in a high fever, and she was under the strain of expecting the arrival of a surgeon from Vienna who was to operate. Her mother had gone away for a short time, and Anna was sitting at the bedside with her right arm over the back of her chair. She fell into a waking dream and saw a black snake coming towards the sick man from the wall to bite him. It is most likely that there were in fact snakes in the field behind the house, and that these had previously given the girl a fright. They would thus have provided the material for her hallucination. She tried to keep the snake off, but it was as though she was paralyzed. Her right arm, over the back of the chair, had gone to sleep and had become anesthetic and paretic. And when she looked at it, the fingers turned into little stakes with death heads as the nails. It seems probable that she had tried to use her paralyzed right arm to drive off the snake and that its anesthesia and paralysis had consequently become associated with the hallucination of the snake. When the snake vanished, in her terror, she tried to pray but language failed her. She could find no tongue in which to speak, till at last she thought of some children's verses in English, 
and found herself able to think and pray in that language. The whistle of the train that was bringing the doctor whom she expected broke the spell. Next day, in the course of a game, she threw a quote into some bushes, and when she went to pick it out, a bent branch retrieved her hallucination of the snake, and simultaneously her right arm became rigidly extended. Thenceforth, the th same thing invariably occurred whenever the hallucination was recalled by some object with a more or less snake-like appearance. This hallucination, however, as well as the contracture, only appeared during short absences, which became more and more frequent from that night onwards. The contracture did not become stabilized until December, when the patient broke down completely and took to her bed permanently. After this was uncovered in a state of hypnosis, um, subsequently her arm regained its functionality and gradually the anesthesia that was present in her arm also resolved. Similarly, he relays a, a story of her hydrophobia, her inability to drink water despite extreme thirst, which she engaged in for a prolonged period of time, much to the distress of her caregivers. Eventually, she relayed under hypnosis that she had the experience of seeing a friend's dog drink from one of her glasses and that this so disgusted her because it was drinking like a human that she didn't feel like drinking in that moment. And after reliving that, um, she subsequently uh, woke up from hypnosis and asked for a glass of water. So you can see in these kind of two examples the, the process of uncovering this repressed memory while in a state of hypnosis, which Brewer and Freud believed was initially critical, coming to some cathartic understanding of it, and then subsequently having the conversion symptom dissipate. So that's Brewer's story. Um, and it, it's fascinated um, generations of neurologists and physicians and psychiatrists ever since because it's so complex and because it has so many aspects that seem to contradict itself and because there's so just so much going on. Freud would later say that he believed that rather than this kind of, you know, business of repressed memories necessarily, he believed that Anna O oh had an electric complex. So she had essentially repressed sexual feelings for her father, which went unrequited, and then she subsequently transferred these on to Brewer. There's some report of at least sexual tension between them, and that's the only thing you can say with any certainty. And of note, that all comes from Freud, and many of the specific facts that he put when he was giving a lecture about this actually were later found to be untrue. So there's, it, it's difficult to say to what degree this was actually involved. Looking at the historical Anna O, so later in like the 50s, someone was actually able to piece together who Anna O actually was. And her real name was Bertha Poppenheim. She was, as is related accurately in the story, the daughter of wealthy Viennese individuals. And the facts of the case seem relatively consistent, except that after she terminated her treatment with Brewer, as is described in Studies on Hysteria, she actually was in quite a bit worse shape than he let on. In fact, in the real life Bertha Poppenheim, Brewer actually recommended she be admitted to an asylum. So this took place in July 12th, 
1882, where she remained until October 29th of that same year. So this is exactly when the case study ended. During this time, her admission to the asylum was noted to be related to significant morphine dependence and chloral hydrate dependence, which Brewer had been giving to her in extremely high doses over the period of the preceding year and a half. She would later be discharged from the asylum in October of that year, but over the course of the next five years was actually readmitted to asylums three separate times, totaling about 10 months of inpatient psychiatric treatment over that period of time. Later, it appears that after this period of about five years post this um, interaction with Brewer, presumably she had a period of psychiatric stability. Friends describe her as at least psychiatrically stable. And she went on to have an extremely successful career as a social worker. In fact, she's considered the mother of social work in Germany. She founded orphanages, she campaigned against prostitution because she believed it to be exploitative of women, and ultimately she would die in 1936. Subsequently, because this case has been so significant to psychiatry and medicine in general as the first talk therapy case, it's been picked over by generations and generations of analysts and psychiatrists and and doctors. And a lot of alternative explanations have come forth. There's, of course, Freud's explanation, which came later, about the sexual tension between Brewer and Anna O, Bertha Poppenheim. Later, it would be questioned whether she had encephalitis, which was something that actually Brewer entertained during the course of his interaction with her, particularly maybe even specific encephalitides like tuberculous meningitis, or maybe she had like limbic encephalitis, or maybe she was having temporal lobe seizures, or, you know, maybe it was some other psychiatric condition. Maybe she had borderline personality disorder, which has been offered. Maybe she had conversion symptoms, which seems consistent with kind of their thought of the time. Or maybe some of this was also manufactured, whether for some secondary gain, for instance, obtaining morphine and chlorohydrate, or primary gain. Maybe it was engaging in the sick role, had a lot of meaning for her. So it could be a factitious disorder. And finally, it could be just the the hallucinosis, the periods of depression, the odd physical symptoms. It may just be related to intoxication and withdrawal of morphine and chlorohydrate, because it seems to have resolved eventually after she was able to stop those substances that Brewer had been giving her. So ultimately, it's a very complicated case for the one to start the movement of talk therapy. So I feel like people know about Freud and how he's a father of psychoanalysis, but not everyone knows Joseph Brewer's name, but he's actually the one who had that founding case and he kind of started with the talk therapy. And I think it's also significant that Anna O oh herself is the one who said she wanted to do this chimney yeah. sweeping and found that to be the cure. So I think that Freud later in his life said that Anna O oh was a founder mm. of psychotherapy, which I thought was really interesting. In terms of her modern day diagnosis, it's like you said, it's very complex and I think it's a mix of things. It's not one simple thing. I've also read that there are theories that Anna O oh had just severe depression mm. with psychosis, which makes sense if she was very close to her father and he was dying and then died. 
with her different conversion symptoms, it does feel like some of those are actual conversion symptoms, like actual functional neurological things. And then there are other things that we kind of discussed and we felt were less conversion and more probably factitious, Mm -hmm. like the, for example, like the hydrophobia. And I think we can't ignore the transference, the obvious transference in this case to Brewer. Yeah. I think there's definitely a dependency there because Brewer, I I read this, um, he was spending like five hours a day, every day with Anno. That's something I can't conceptualize doing today. No, absolutely not. And a couple times actually in the text, he like, he remarks about like how the reader might suspect that she is like faking essentially, but I have no doubt as to her truthfulness. And he says that several times. Like, that just, from a modern-day perspective, seems kind of naive. It does, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you have to think, like, does he really believe that, or is he kind of sort of aware of Anna O's feelings towards him and wants to stay away from that conversation? I think something that's also interesting is that she actually never talked about this. Her identity was revealed after her death. And actually, so she, I mentioned she was a social worker. She um, ran a lot of orphanages. She flatly prohibited psychoanalysis from being performed in any of them. Interesting. Um, so I wonder if that adds another layer as well. Discussing the Anna O case and reading about the other cases of hysteria in this book, why is it that the hysterics that Freud treated appear to be more high-functioning than the conversion disorder patients we see today? Yeah. I mean, like, for example, like, Anna O, she spoke six languages. She was extremely intelligent. She, like, went on to have this, like, illustrious career in social work. I think a lot of it is probably just a sampling bias. I mean, who now, let alone, like, back then when this was an unproven treatment, would be able to afford a, like, a physician to, like, come to their house every day for, like, months and months and months Like, it would only be extremely wealthy people. Whereas, I think our experience is maybe the exact opposite. I mean, we're in, like, a a university, like, an academic medical center that's state-funded. So, I mean, the population we see is almost diametrically opposite in terms of, like, incentives on how to provide care. Most of our population is Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare. Which, I mean, the the equivalent in Freud's day would have not have existed. Those patients just would not have gotten care. Yeah, I think we really have to put into perspective that Freud's patients were private practice, wealthy patients. Mm -hmm. And these were the women he was seeing. And I think we should also look at the historical context of when all this was happening. This was when... You know, there was animal magnetism, which is the, mm-hmm. the forefather of hypnosis. And the idea of having these hysteria symptoms and the idea of hypnosis, that was widely in the general public's consciousness. So mm-hmm. if people had seen this in the news or you know, heard of other people with this, it's kind of, I guess it's more accepted to express your distress like that back in the day. And women back then didn't have many ways to express their distress. There was less understanding of mental health, 
less language to describe psychic disturbances. So the way for women to express their distress in a socially acceptable way was in those kind of conversion symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, now it's very taboo to talk about like childhood sexual abuse, but I think that was probably a factor in a lot of Freud's early cases as well. Right. And when it was even more taboo to talk about something like that. Exactly. So back then, they utilized hypnosis as a treatment for conversion disorder. What's the evidence on that, like, from a modern perspective? Well, from a modern-day perspective, you can actually still get hypnosis for a functional neurological disorder. The other day in clinic, I saw a patient who was trying to get hypnosis. There's, like, one provider in town Hmm. who does hypnosis for his tic disorder. So what what I've read is that hypnosis works because of the power of suggestion, not necessarily because it is hypnosis. And that sort of suggestion is utilized nowadays in modern type evidence-based therapies like CBT, and insurance will pay for evidence-based therapies. Mm-hmm. And then the evidence on hypnosis is mostly just case studies, and there really aren't many randomized control trials looking at hypnosis. Mm. And then when it comes to power of suggestion, I remember one of my neurology attendings saying this, that with these patients with these functional neurological disorders, you don't necessarily challenge it outright, but you subtly say that, well, I think you will get better. You know, I I can see your condition improving. In two weeks, you should be able to move your foot. In two months, you should be able to recover your ability to walk. And then lo and behold, these patients who said, I have no feeling in my leg, I can't move it, are walking. And it is a way of ego preservation. They've gotten stuck in this predicament and they can't get out of it, Mm -hmm. which makes it sound like it's made up, but it's almost like an unconscious process that's happening. Yeah. The way I've heard my other attendings like pitch it to patients is like, particularly in the context of psychogenic non-epileptic spells, um, like good news, this is not epileptic. And that's good because we know that essentially seizures are neurotoxic, that it's like this electric storm in your brain that we need to use these heavy-duty medicines to treat. But the good news is it's not that. We didn't capture any epileptic activity on your EEG. So that means what you have is a functional neurologic disorder, which is the explanation they usually give is like the conversion disorder one, that your your brain is, without your input, is directly converting like emotional distress into physical movement. And the good news is we have a really good treatment for that, and it's cognitive behavioral therapy or like something like that. I've um, also heard them say it's not a problem with your hardware, it's a problem with your software. Yeah, and I like that like too. That. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is like, this is unsourced, but I've heard this repeated a number of times that like psychoeducation about functional neurologic disorders in and of itself is curative in like a huge yeah. like percentage of these cases. Yeah, there's evidence for that. Um, so I know you have experienced treating mm-hmm. conversion disorder with CBT. Yeah, yeah. And in, in my case, this was a patient without any index trauma. So he was the one, it was like without the psychological stress. But like he had like a, a functional tremor, which was like overlaid on a like a real dystonic tremor that he'd had for a very long time. And essentially what we did is he had kind of an underlying panic disorder that would really exacerbate this, and that's what was causing him a lot of distress. 
wouldn't leave the house because he was worried about what people would think of him. Um, so we treated the panic disorder, and the tremors got better. Mm. And the way we treated it was with cognitive behavioral therapy. We is, didn't use any hypnosis, and we yeah. didn't unpack like any historical trauma. We just treated what was in front of us, and it got better. Is there a specific protocol for a conversion disorder? Yes, there is. The gold standard is a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy plus like some kind of physical rehabilitation, like PT or OT. But the cognitive behavioral therapy aspect, it involves essentially like working on managing triggers, working on like mitigating the circumstances kind of that like make it worse than it otherwise would be if you were to have a spell, doing a lot of psychoeducation, and then finally uh, working on any underlying cognitive distortions that are exacerbating the problem. Like essentially there's a reason why we don't routinely do hypnosis for conversion disorders mm-hmm. nowadays, even though from Freud's time, from his writings, it sounds like, you know, they were easily able to treat it. They just have to talk and then yeah. uncover the trauma and then treat this. But practically speaking, I don't know, maybe psychodynamic psychotherapy could help, but practically that's pretty difficult to obtain. It's expensive, time-consuming yeah. for most people. And we know CBT works. And we know CBT works, and we're not really sure on the evidence of hypnosis because, uh, as we discussed, Anna O's case wasn't necessarily a successful case. And then the next case I read was a patient named Emmy Yuan, and from modern-day perspective, probably had borderline personality disorder with some mm. conversion aspects. But she also was not treated successfully. And, you know, it, it also kind of brings to mind kind of this kind of a tangent. But I wonder in, like, how many cases that are, like, treated with hypnosis to, to uncover this trauma is, like you said, is just suggestion. Like, is mm-hmm. it implanting, like, a false memory? Because I know that's historically been an issue with hypnosis in the past. Oh, yeah. So there's an introductory essay by Freud and Brewer, and also an essay on at the end on the treatment using psychotherapy of hysteria by Freud that introduces these concepts. Yeah, and I think the two things that Freud and Brewer highlight is that their conception of these cases was, their ideology was basically in, in two kind of camps. And they said that in the first group are patients who in like underwent some kind of psychical trauma but were unable to enact their response in the moment. And as a result of that, this was intentionally repressed and then would later come out as conversion symptoms. The second group of people, which is where Anna O falls, is a patient who was in some way in a dissociative state and thus even minor things, like in Anna O's case, the dog drinking water out of the cup, became much more psychologically significant than they otherwise would have been because they were in this dissociative, or they say, like, hypnotic state. And that's their conceptualization about the ideology of these conversion symptoms. And then with the essay that's at the end of the book called The Psychotherapy of Hysteria by Freud, if you're going to read anything, read this, Mm -hmm. because it's quite readable, and it really outlines Freud's hypothesis that he's starting to build. And so this essay begins to explore the concepts of transference, resistance, the unconscious, and defense mechanisms. Mm. And these are all concepts that sound familiar to us today and I think are actually relevant 
to how we practice psychiatry today. So one of the main theories is that psychotherapy brings the unconscious to the surface and that the pathogenic memories have been suppressed, but with the aid of hypnosis, you can recall these memories and in putting them to words, you give them an outlet. And that is why psychotherapy talk therapy helps. Mm. Uh, And then he also introduces the idea of resistance. So some patients have more resistance than others. This is where hypnosis comes in. The idea of having patients lie down is a way of lowering their resistance. And Freud also came up with this method of applying pressure to their heads and having them recall something. Like physical pressure, like pushing yeah, their heads? Yeah. Oh, geez. And then later he abandoned that for the idea of free association. So let me read you this quote about how Freud conceptualizes resistance. It is remarkable under what subterfuges these resistances are frequently hidden. I am distracted today. The clock or the piano playing in the next door disturbs me, they say. I become accustomed to answer to that. Not at all. You simply struck something that you are not willing to say. That does not help you at all. Just stick to it. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely something we we see all the time. Like, a common example from, like, CBT is, like, patients who don't do their homework between sessions. Yeah. And then Freud also introduces this idea of defenses and unconscious motivations and that there's this repression of an unbearable idea as a defense. Mm. So I feel like the idea of defense mechanisms, repression, your unconscious motives, that all started from Freud and that all started from studies on hysteria. Yeah, I, I agree that there's there's definitely a conscious and an unconscious, or even just the, the very simple idea that there are motivations and drives and impulses that we're not aware of in our conscious interactions, yet they do influence our behaviors and our thoughts and our feelings and our reactions. So an example of one of these defense mechanisms would be like repression, which is talked about ad infinitum through this book, and we've kind of already touched on that before. But another example could be like intellectualization, which is typically generally considered one of the more mature defense mechanisms. But for instance, if you're in a hospital and your relative's dying, people often will tend to focus a lot about the details and, you know, what comes next and let's organize this and make sure that this is all set. That's a defense against this, what is at the moment just an unacceptable or unhelpful feeling of over being overwhelmed and with grief. And then finally he introduces this idea of transference. And the transference is how the patient feels about the physician or the therapist. And countertransference is how the therapist feels about the patient. So these could be positive or they could be negative. Freud recognize this in the interactions of the psychotherapy. So let me read you what he says about transference. If the patient fears less, the painful ideas emerging from the content of the analysis would be transferred to the physician. This happens frequently, and indeed in many analyses it is a regular occurrence. The transference to the physician occurs through false connections. I must here give an example. 
the origin of a certain hysterical symptom in one of my hysterical patients was the wish she entertained years ago, which was immediately banished into the unconscious, that the man with whom she at the time conversed would heartily grasp her and force a kiss on her. After the ending of the session, such a wish occurred to the patient in reference to me. She was horrified and spent a sleepless night, and at the next session, although she did not refuse the treatment, she was totally unfit for the work. After I had discovered the obstacle and removed it, the work continued. That's interesting. I think Freud was the one who pointed out Anna O's transference onto Brewer. Mm-hmm. And uh, thinking about transference today and countertransference is really important to us as psychiatrists because we're thinking, are our feelings about the patients getting in the way of how we're treating them? Mm-hmm. Uh, are the patients' feelings towards us getting in the way of their treatment? And to be able to recognize that and to help facilitate the therapy. Yeah, you can focus in on it and address it specifically. Like there's some some types of therapy, like transference-focused therapy is explicitly designed to work through this kind of issues. The most common example is like a patient who's mad at you for not refilling whatever medicine or for not listening to them. It's like, oh, you're exactly like my father. You never listen or something like that. (laughs) On the one hand, on the service level, it could be like, okay, he's frustrated about a lack of control. But on a transferential level, perhaps he, the patient is working through these feelings that they were having towards their father. And whether the truth is that you, as a psychiatrist, are being controlling, he is projecting those feelings onto you, and that's his transference. So you could address it and potentially get to the root of it and see if, like, whether there's truth there, whether there's meaning there, and then theoretically be able to have a more productive relationship going forward. Studies on hysteria is where Freud starts to formulate some of his psychosexual theories. And Freud and Brewer disagreed about the importance of sexual factors. After the publication of Studies on Hysteria, Freud and Brewer go their separate ways, mainly because Freud was increasingly convinced of the importance of these sexual factors, but Brewer was not. So Freud observed the prevalence of sexual trauma in his patients and thought that this played a role in hysteria and all neuropsychoses. He thought the original trauma was always linked to real-life sexual trauma experience in childhood and then later repressed. He had this viewpoint for a short period of time and then later he abandoned it because how could every single patient have sexual trauma? But he kind of addended his theory to say, well, the sexual trauma could be imagined rather than actually experienced. So what do you think about Freud's belief that the trauma is always sexual? I guess, like, kind of just a disclosure of, like, our background. So I think something that's not always super apparent to the unindoctrinated, like, the non-psychiatric people, but there's varying degrees to which different training programs in different areas of the country or the world accept psychodynamic interpretations of things and there's a difference between psychoanalytic which is like freud 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 and psychodynamic which is kind of the the modern theoretical descendant of freud so there's some difference there we come from a program that's not particularly psychodynamic and so my worldview is also not particularly psychodynamic 
so that all that being said it doesn't seem like there's much truth to it it doesn't I agree with you that it can't possibly explain the varieties of, like, psychiatric presentations. Again, the the fundamental underpinning that there are unconscious drives and motivations to our behavior that we're not aware of, that it's helpful to be made aware of, I get that. I think pretty much every aspect of psychology and psychiatry is built on that. But the idea that it's always connected to sex, I think the, the nugget of truth there is that Childhood sexual trauma seems to be particularly psychically damaging. Like, Mm -hmm. it is, like, it's a risk factor for essentially every psychiatric condition that exists. It's it's very, very bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe there's some truth there that just because it's so significant, maybe some smaller degrees of significance are imbued from less severe things. But I just, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I don't think it explains all of it. I think there's some truth to the criticism about Freud. Right, right. I mean, I think we're instinctively repulsed by this idea that everything is about sex. Yeah. And it's the first thing that's always brought up to discredit Freud. Oh, he thinks everything is about sex. And part of me wonders, are we kind of resistant to the idea of exploring that aspect because of our own backgrounds? Is there Maybe. this puritanical American Christian thing at play that makes us just want to shy away from that. And I think at the time, that was certainly true. Women were insulted if Freud even brought up the idea Mm. to them, oh, you have some sexual trauma in your history. We have to remember, historically, his patients were women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them probably did have some sexual trauma and there were less outlets back in the day. If they did have that sexual trauma, it was very repressed. Mm -hmm. And I do think sexual trauma is quite prevalent. Modern day too, I mean, I feel like almost all of the patients we see with borderline personality disorder have some sort of trauma, especially sexual trauma is particularly prevalent. And maybe it's not just sexual trauma, maybe it's just sex in general is a huge drive for humans in general that we kind of repress. That That's one of the big unconscious motivations that is repressed, probably one of the biggest. That's certainly what Freud thought, yeah. Yeah, or back in the day, female patients had no legitimate paths to sex other than marriage mm. and no recourse for yeah. sexual trauma. That's, that, that is very true. When I think about it, how was everyone not sexually repressed back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. Probably people nowadays, probably half of everyone today, maybe more, is sexually repressed. Not that I agree with everything is about sex, but mm-hmm. I, I think certainly it's a significant factor there. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that, I think. It's significant. Yeah. And back when Freud wrote this, this was before... He wrote three essays on the theory of sexuality that introduces his most famous theories, penis envy, edible complex. That happened later on in 1905. There's definitely a lot to be said for Freud's ideas on sex, and it can and has filled multiple, multiple volumes of books. So it's probably too much for us to fully unpack today, but maybe in our future episodes going forward. All right, and... Finally, I want to end with a quote from Freud's essay, The Psychotherapy of Hysteria. 
When I promised my patients help and relief through the cathartic method, I was often obliged to hear the following objections. You say yourself that my suffering has probably much to do with my own relation and destinies. You cannot change any of that. In what manner then can you help me? To this, I could always answer, I do not doubt at all that it would be easier for fate than for me to remove your sufferings, but you will be convinced that much will be gained if we succeed in transforming your hysterical misery into everyday happiness, against which you will be better able to defend yourself with a restored nervous system. Wow. I, I just love that quote. It's so relevant even today, where we're telling our patients, you might always have that anxiety and depression. We, we just want you to be able to live with the level of anxiety and depression you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really profound. Yeah. And hopeful. Well, thank you for this really interesting discussion of studies on hysteria. I think this is the first part of our two-parter on Freud. So in the next episode, we'll be talking about the interpretation of dreams, kind of be doing a book club discussion of that. But anyway, this has been the History of Madness podcast. You can find us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you have a minute, please give us a like and leave a comment. It really helps us grow the show. Thanks for listening.